Hey, how's it going, guys? Hello, sir. Pleasure to see you. Oh, man, it's so nice to see you. I'm so jealous of the bathroom view behind you. You're in Mexico, right? Those tiles, you could just tell. People get to get a glimpse of my blue tile bathroom. Amazing. My plane got delayed. I'm getting in. I got in late, but here, this is this is good. So forgive me. It's the first time I spoke this morning. We'll have to wake it up. <laughs> Sorry we made you wake up so early. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Good morning, Deva. Are you in Mumbai? I'm very much in Mumbai. And we just finished us for philanthropy week, which was a resounding success in terms of just meeting people again after so long and discussing the new challenges that we all face as a nation. Who do we have on the show today? Lauren Cardelli. Lauren, I met at a Synergos retreat about six months ago. He's an amazing individual who's grown up in New York City, lives in Mexico City today, and works with farmers across the world, providing them the support to tell their stories more effectively and reclaim their ownership across the lands that they preserve. While Lauren recorded this particular conversation while he was in Mexico City, he actually did come to India in February and spent time with us he also visited many of their partners across India, including Kerala, Karnataka, Urissa, and Andhra Pradesh, meeting them after COVID. Well, first of all, Lauren, thank you so much for being a guest on No Cost Extension. This has been, I guess, in the cards for about four months now, and it's just been really exciting for me to, first of all, meet you of all places in Montana on a retreat with Peggy Dulaney and the Synergos crew, but really from that meeting and spending a week together, see you as a soul brother and just what you've been doing for many, many years, not just in Mexico or in India, but globally and really bringing the voice out of so many individuals across the world who are really the basis of humanity as we know it and as indigenous as they can be. I thought having you as a guest so more people can hear your story, how you came about to do this work, your family history, as well as what the amazing organizations and individuals do in your network, I think it would just be great. Oh, you're very welcome. It's an honor and the feeling is incredibly mutual. Really grateful to have met you in Montana. Really excited to break bread sometime in India together, you know? No, no, and I want to come to Mexico to break some tortillas with you. <laughs> do it. Let's do it. We got some great restaurants for you out here. Yeah. And so I guess to begin with, just it would be great for our listeners to hear a little bit about your personal background and, you know, your family history, because I think that was something that was really important. I'm Puerto Rican Jew from New York. and come from an extremely dynamic diaspora-based family, right? The lineages of my family come from a multitude of different countries, and everyone came to the United States fleeing oppression. On the Jewish side, there's both Ashkenazi and Sephardic blood. On my Latino side, there's both Spanish and Puerto Rican Taino blood. And I think what's really fascinating is how New York and the United States in general kind of becomes this magnet for, for a lot of the diaspora community, right? 
And there's this really amazing Jewish community from Yiddishland, from the areas of Russia and Poland, that has really inspired me, actually. And I'm not a religious person, but so much of the alternative Hebrew thinkings and communities, whether they were very worker-driven, they were anarchists, they were socialists, they were Marxists, they were, they were collectivists. A lot of those communities that lived in pockets scattered across Europe, a lot of their legacy and ideologies have kind of been erased and lost. Like There was a Bundist community, I think it was Poland and Russia, which believed in this concept of diasporism, where they believed that the gift from God was to be in this constant position of diaspora. And that what that meant, diasporism meant, was that wherever the Jewish people were, wherever their feet lay, was the holy land. And to treat that land as it was holy and fight for justice and equity for that. And for that land and in that land, right? And I find that to be so powerful as a calling of somebody who's, you know, how do we embrace our identity, our story, our narrative, right? Like when we come from such a mix, right? When we're in a world where purity kind of is like this definition of, of that we kind of hold to in, in so many ways, like the pure job, the pure capital, the pure identity. And it creates this, you know, so for a lot of mixed and diaspora people, they, they get this identity crisis, they get all these issues, right? Like, and those are, I mean, of purity, which I think is really a tool of white supremacy, right? Like, and so I think it's really powerful to reconcile with how do we all find enlightenment, sovereignty in an uprooted world? Because that's what we are, right? And I think that, you know, has been in the backdrop of my mind a lot. There's been many experiences that I've gone through that have really shaped me and that have led me to kind of start this organization. You know, one was growing up with a massive learning disorder, speech impediment, word retrieval problem. I used to not be able to communicate. In fact, I couldn't say my name until a very late age in my life. And it was then where I realized the power of this, of language. You know, sitting around the table with dynamic siblings, right? A full house all the time. I mean, you know, dinner was never less than like 10 kind of thing, right? Like always people, everyone at the table and everyone was arguing. I came from a family that if we watched a two hour movie, we would talk four hours about it, right? Like it was like mandated, right? Like discussion, interpretation, analysis. And that comes from my parents being in, you know, the psychology and psychiatry sectors, right? And so you would try to say something and you were laughed and mocked, you know, not by my parents, of course, but by my older brother, right? Like, and you sit at the table, you have something so much to say. And then it's part of what you realize is how we get silenced, right? Like, and if you realize how society and culture and our social ecology silence us, but then we call those people what? We call them voiceless, right? And it's so powerful to see how language is framed, where so often a condition is shifted to become an identity. And what that means is so powerful. Like, it's so powerful because what it means is it erases the 
onus of who, who's doing that harm. And in an unjust society, we have to center, we try, we, there's like a magnetic pull for so many of us who have benefited in society to center comfort, not the uncomfortable truth, right? And so when we use words in that way, it removes the onus. So like when somebody becomes voiceless, that onus is on them for not being heard. When they're called silence, it's saying, well, wait, who is silencing them, right? When someone is called a slave, that becomes an identity. They're the slave, it's on them. Nobody is slave. Nobody's born. They're enslaved, right? And we see when you say enslaved, you say, well, wait, who's enslaving? Who's doing that harm, right? And you look how this exists so often when we call something food desert to food apartheid. When we say something food security, where you can be food secure in a prison, having no autonomy, but you're still food secure, right? Is that what we want? Or is it food sovereignty? Is it choice and option and agency, right? We look at these things and it's so powerful, the framing of language, right? And so we say the poor as an identity, but they're not, they're impoverished, right? Like somebody's doing this, this is not a natural thing. But then we say hunger, the hunger. And I've been like thinking about this like so often, like what is the word that we can shift that for people? Also landless. Like as an identity of landless, but like, wait, no, they're being denied access to land, right? There's an aggressive force that's coming in. Hold on. But what is the word that we can use to replace landless, to replace hungry, that shows that condition that's happening and a collective responsibility that we all have in enabling that society that does that? That's where I'm at this morning. I apologize, but that, like, I'm thinking about those, you know. And I know you're here, and I know you're brilliant. So I'm like, oh, maybe he's got an idea. <laughs> I think just like you were just talking about, even on the diaspora fund. I mean, I also, you know, my parents were first generation immigrants moving from India to the U.S. and and you know, so many of us, I guess, have had that story. I think what's unique about you know the conversations at least that we had and what you just spoke about was it wasn't just about treating the new land as your own, but then the emphasis on just equity and dignity. And so, and I say that because many first generation immigrants, you know, from around the world, regardless of which country they end up in, or even, you know, which state they end up in, because we work at least at Dasar with lots of migrant communities, you know, who've left states within India and who've come to Maharashtra for a better job or whatnot. It is sort of them coming for giving them families a better life. And so economics is a big part of that. And in that pursuant of their own equity, they may not have the ability to then focus on the community equity at the same time, because they've left again, you know, an area which is whether it's the land or the climate or the oppression, you know, that has sort of probably forced them out of wherever they were their culture, their language, their community, their religion, like you were just talking about, but then have gone to a new location. And so I guess my question is how in your sort of upbringing or for what you've seen, or even the communities that you work with, how is that sort of just an equitable view sort of lasted beyond just what they're doing for themselves, but for the, everyone around them as well? I think that we live in a world where we're tied together and connected in more ways than we can ever imagine. And I believe that behavior to the environment 
is a reflection of the relationships that we hold dear to ourselves within each other, right? Like, what does that translate to? That translates that there is no sustainability or regeneration as long as we have patriarchy and hierarchy and oppression within our societies. That that injustice, the injustice of exploitation, you know, manifests and reflects itself in the extraction, right, of the soil, of the forest, of all of that, right? And that to build the kind of just, dignified future that we want, to build the environmental future that we want, we have to first hold up a mirror and look at ourselves and the way we're engaging, right? Hurt people hurt people. Like, we live in a society where that is cycled down, right? Like, it's interesting, there's this horrible trope used to describe poor and marginalized people, crabs in a barrel. And we said, they're acting like crabs in a barrel. And what happens is a crab in a barrel tries to get out, another one pulls itself down, pulls the other one down, and none can get out. But what's so interesting is crabs don't act like that. That's not a crab behavior. That's a crab behavior in a barrel. So who put them in that barrel? Right. And we and far too often we're not looking at like the environment that is fostering these conditions and I mean these realities and these behaviors and these traits, right? We're just looking at the individual those traits. And I think that's really dangerous. And that is what that kind of thinking and lens upholds the systems of oppression that we're trying to fight. And so for me, it's looking at the environment that we're in so much that affects that. And so in that understanding, for me, the most appropriate form of engagement in communities or whatnot comes from not pushing a solution or a set of practices or techniques or innovation. This is what we see a lot in like the climate movement and the veganism and all these kind of things right it's saying here's a set of values or principles or practices and we're pushing that and everybody has to adopt that at a grown culture we don't fight for that we fight for people's autonomy and sovereignty to make the decisions that they want like we fight for a mosaic of relationships a diversity of relationships with the with the land and with each other right not a singular solution right and i think that's where we have to sit and reflect on a lot or is, in this work is what are we promoting, right? Are we promoting a plurality because we live in systems of uniformity, right? Like our market and our the way we engage, our financial system, our you know educational system, our racial systems, our like everything is are all systems of uniformity, right? You know, polarized binary, right? And I think we have to break that out, and so that to me, is how we fight for justice, is fighting for the right of every community, every individual to shape and reflect the world in the way that they want, right? As long as it doesn't harm or negate them others. And that's what the sovereignty movement is about, you know? What you see a lot in India in the communities is that's what they're fighting for, is that choice to exist, you know, in a society that has stratified them through racial and economic and tribal ways, right? Like, that's what they're looking for, right? And what we're seeing right now is the effects of 
the Green Revolution across that mighty subcontinent. And the Green Revolution was a system pushing of uniformity into an agricultural landscape of massive diversity, right? Like, And that was a system of uniformity, which then led to farmers not having choice over seed, over farming practice, over market price, over anything, right? And what we're fighting for is them to have that choice again over what to grow, how to grow, how to, who to sell it to, what price to sell it to. Spoke about this quite a bit, but I think those are some of the same principles that we have with the Rebuild India Fund, which is look, let's just let's give communities support for them to do what they need to do. I mean, I guess for again individuals from these small community-based organizations, and again, many of them haven't traveled because of COVID and the rest of it. So it's also the first sort of NGO gathering that they've had come together and before creating sort of this workshop and partner meet, we ask each and every one of them, like, what do you want to learn? What can we do? How do we make this one week useful? Because clearly you all are so busy in the field. I don't want this to be a waste of time. And so many of them said, we want help with legal and compliance or this or that. So we created, you know, all of these workshops and sort of sessions for them. And, but what was amazing, and I think COVID had a big role in this is just the feeling of being part of a larger community in solidarity from across the country with different languages, religions, and castes, but to be together as one, as one India, as one group, and they're all sort of focusing on rebuilding India in their own ways, but respecting that and feeling power that somebody in Karnataka will feel the same way like somebody in Maharashtra or somebody in Jharkhand. It was just that level of solidarity is something we've not seen in a long, long time. And it just shows that those that have this community mindset, like your partners in growing culture or the partners in Rebuild India, for them, everyone is part of the same community. And that's why they thrive. But unfortunately, a lot of the world does not think that way. And that's why we have the issues that we have today. When we look at our climates that we're in, right, we have the environmental, the social, ecological political, right? All intersecting. And what we're seeing is the climate change crisis, right? Climate crisis. We're seeing the, you know, hunger crisis, you know, the poverty crisis, right? We're seeing the the crisis of patriarchy, right? Like we're seeing these crises. And yet underneath all those crises is a foundational crisis that I think we're all in. And that is a crisis of imagination. And that's that we are unable to imagine other ways of living, right? And and it's so fascinating to me because then when you, I do not want to go on their Foucault rabbit hole, but when you look at like the history of madness, right? And like how, what we called madness back in the day and how we defined, you know, these new thoughts, these critical thinking, like, oh, wait, the world isn't flat or whatever, you know, we revolve around this, like, well, all of these things, right? Those were considered mad. And what happened was those people were burned, were killed, were tortured, right? And we are the descendants of the ones who were fearful of those innovative and new ideas. There's, you know, you can say, you can watch how certain phrases or tropes or frames have reactions and some don't. You can see it's across the political diet. If it's like the right or the left, the religious right, the climate left, whatever, you hear the end of the world. Right. Like it's almost palatable for us. Like the end of the world is coming, the end of the world is, and the world is that. It doesn't create this visceral reaction, right? But yet the end, if I say like 
the end of capitalism at that dinner table. People are going to be like, whoa, right? Like, left or right? And like, so there's this narrative hold, or there's this like control of our imaginative potential where, and Rowan White is an amazing indigenous woman. She told me, she said, white people have an easier time imagining the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I see that. And I see, like, what does it mean to live in a system where like, our own fatality of us and living systems is more tangible than the fatality of our economic system, right? Like that covers, like it, this is, it's such a powerful hold on us, right? Like when you like step back and think about what does that mean for imagination, right? Or like for world building, which is what we're all trying to do. Like we're holding that, those tensions of like, how do we work towards a world that is just and dignified to do that we have to imagine a world that is just or dignified and put that marker somewhere and work towards that and if we don't have the capacity to imagine fundamentally different ways to engage with the commodification of nature right <laughs> or labor or whatnot like and imagine it. and it's just to me it's so crippling right that we even find ourselves in that situation, right? So how do we navigate that? How do we work around that and start to build these worlds, right? Without that imagination, right? Like, and so I think what's really powerful right now is storytelling, right? Is narrative. Because I think that when we look at the world around us and we're, especially with COVID, right? We talked about COVID, let's bring that back, right? Like COVID, authoritarianism, digital media, Wherever we go in the world, we're going to turn on the news and hear similar things of fake news, misinformation, whatnot. Science is real. But yet when you step back and look at the trees, I mean, look at the forest instead of the trees, what you start to see is like, wait, where's fact governing and, you know, governing our social interaction? Where is where is it impacting us? I'm confused right here. So like, is the caste system on the back? Or is that a story we've been told, right? Like, are operating systems right like is patriarch is our fates upheld by fact or are they stories right like is white supremacy or patriarchy or whatever like are these systems upheld by facts no they're beliefs and so at the root of so much of this about how we engage and how we reflect is story and i think we don't give credit to that power of that narrative because the truth is we're living in a system that is destroying our ability to live in the future, economically, politically, environmentally, whatnot, right? That's the fact, but yet we still perpetuate and continue it because we've been told a story of where innovation is gonna come from, a story of how we need to live, of what is efficient, what is productive, what is needed, who feeds the world, right? Like those stories are there and they're not based in fact. They're not. In talking about those stories and talking about indigenous communities everywhere, and clearly there have been issues across humanity. So in no way were things better 500 years ago or a thousand years ago, but there were certain practices and beliefs of these communities that in growing culture, you all have been able to give a platform for them to tell their story. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, so what we do is we work in a few ways. We, you can probably simplify it down to three ways, right? So we work with 
you know, land with peasant indigenous communities in the struggle for land and, you know, environmental rights and sovereignty, what we call food sovereignty, right? And so we do that by working in three ways. We produce, like, we're like a platform for storytelling, right? And so we produce, you know, curriculums, content, film, all that challenging the narrative of our agricultural system, right? And sorry, Lauren, I'm just going to stop you there because I want to understand that a little bit more for our listeners. When you say you create stories challenging the system, are you telling stories that are challenging the system? Or from what we've just been discussing, are you telling stories of communities who've done things a certain way for many, many generations who just their story has never been told? Both, right? Because you need context, right? You need the solution stories, but you also need the context and of how the World Trade Organization sets the rules or how, like, you know, land grabbing or IMF or whatnot is happening, right? Like, so we need to engage in that. And I think real quick, we can look at agriculture right now. Like, and I think this is probably what your listeners will will need to hold on to, which is that industrial agriculture controls 81 percent of agricultural land in the world. So smallholder peasant indigenous farmers control 19% of agricultural land. On that 19% of agricultural land, they produce over 70% of the food consumed, right? They protect 95% of agricultural biodiversity, right? And they use less than 30% of agricultural resources, like fertilizer, like seed, like what, to get them, right? So now we've been told that industrial ag is necessary to feed our world, right? We've been told that industrial agriculture is more efficient, right? If it was more efficient, then why is it on 81% of the land feeding the world, right? Like, this is the reality, right? And so what does this look like today? Is it looks like we're producing enough food for 1.5 times the world's population, and yet over 1 billion people go to bed hungry every day, right? So we are overproducing the amount of caloric energy that we need to feed everyone like, and half of another person on this world, and yet still hunger exists, right? And because it's not about food, per se, like, it's not about a lack of food, it's about a lack of access to food. And a lack of access is economic, right? So when you also want to look at what that looks like today, is 70% of the world's hungry are involved in agriculture. Like, we are starving the very ones who produce our food because they're caught in a system that doesn't compensate them enough, right? This is what we saw take to the streets, right? Right? Doesn't compensate them enough to be able to purchase food to feed their own families because now they're growing from market, not themselves. And we've pushed that shift and said the market will take care of you. Grow just cotton. Grow just rice for export. Grow this. And yet it doesn't. And they're starving, right? So that, to when we understand agriculture, we can start to peel back. But then why are we putting all of our energy and development into programs that prop up industrial agriculture, right? Like that's not based on research. It's based on a belief and a narrative that industrial agriculture has told the world that people believe that this is more efficient, that this is necessary. And I think people view it as toxic to the environment, toxic to the economy, toxic to all these systems, but they view it as a necessary evil because they're scared of a life without it, right? And that is narrative work. And so that's the kind of work that we're doing to confront that, right? 
And we do that in many ways. We amplify the stories of peasant and indigenous and grassroots communities on our platform. We do develop curriculums to understand how our food system works because we need to break away from a system to systems, right? Like that uniformity to plurality. That's the first pillar. The second pillar is we work with communities that have asked and requested our support 100% only, right? We don't kickstart a new program. But with that, what that looks like is a we operate like an agency. So that community comes to us, they're dealing with displacement, with food policy, with they want to get the, you know, they want to build a campaign around farmer seeds against GMOs, against something. They come to us and we work with them to create campaigns and communications and narrative work around that issue and around that theme, right? So that's like we work pro bono for peasant indigenous groups around the world, developing strategic communications, right? And the third thing we do is we built the world's first food sovereignty, peasant indigenous press relations firm. And so we work with thousands of journalists around the world and we get stories placed. And last year we got over 200 stories placed in international media and not one mentioned the girl culture. They mentioned the perspective and voices of communities. So if they're dealing with something, we help get them and connect that out into the mainstream audience. These are stories that need to be told. This is a new way of looking at climate change beyond the carbon frame, right? Like this is what's going on. And like people need to see and hear those stories. They need to see those realities because we talked about solidarity. Well, solidarity, you have to be somewhat informed to know who you're in solidarity with. It's like there needs to be that connection that like how do we get that person in Bangalore or Bay Area to care about the farmer in Philippines? Where nine out of 10 farmers in the Philippines don't own the land they till because they're caught in a fuel system. How do we get them to care about the farmer in Ghana who's dealing with the draconian seed policy that put him in jail for bringing indigenous seeds to the market, right? How do we put them in touch and get them to care with the landless worker in Brazil that's just looking for a place to call home and has been systematically denied that for generation and generation. How did you all go to identify these communities? Um, what, like, how did you start this? I mean, you're, you're a Jewish Puerto Rican growing up in New York City. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think I started it with, you know, just, I don't even know how to explain this. You know, I had a very traumatic experience when I was 18 years old. I didn't want to go to college. I didn't function well in that kind of learning environment, right? Um, and so I took off and I started traveling and I met, I went to Belize. I got a one-way ticket. And the first night I met this guy in a bar who convinced me to go deep out into the bush to live life and learn bush life 101. Learn how to hunt, how to grow own food, how to build cabanas, how to trap, how to make medicinals, how to survive. And I foolishly followed him. You know, highway turned into country road, turned into dirt road, turned into logging road. And they dropped us off and it was a two-hour hike into our bush camp. And they dropped us off at this little village that and no electricity or whatnot. And that was our neighbor, two-hour walk. We were further in. And for several months, I lived there. I drank from this same stream that I bathed and washed my clothes in. 
we hunt our own meat, we grow our own vegetables. And, you know, as you know, growing up in New York City, you're not really trained how to hunt, right? Like, it's not like a thing that we learn. And so I was a crappy hunter and I really wanted some meat. So I went to barter with our the community. That was a two-hour walk. I walked out and went to barter for some chickens. And as I was bartering, I heard some screaming. And I ran over there and I saw this man, this young man, with his arms out, holding his son. And his son had died from drinking the pesticides that his father used on his farm. And I watched as that community surrounded that man and his child. And what I realized is that that, that community was so close but yet so far away. It was a two-hour walk from where we were, but yet it was right on a logging road, which meant it was connected to the market, which meant it was connected to the brokers and the pushers of industrial agriculture. That community was growing for export, right? They were growing using, you know, industrial seeds, chemicals, uh, monocultures, right? And yet we were in growing this diverse polycultural system, right? We had abundance, right? And I looked at how different their reality was. And I realized that there's like two faces of our agricultural system. There's this version of agriculture that can be truly liberatory and regenerative and healing. And we've seen that. You know that. We all hold stories of that encoded in our DNA, right? Like stories of beautiful medicinal plants and community rituals and, you know, like, come on. And yet we see another side of agriculture, which is exploitive of human and the environment, which is extractive of energy and resources and workforce. And it was there that I realized that the, the path to environmental erosion that we all care about is social and cultural erosion, is the knowledge that we hold, the brilliance and ingenuity of unnamed scientists, aka farmers and peasants around the world, right? And that's where I came up with the idea to create this organization. You know, you know thank God. You know, a scholarship, went to agriculture, helped start an organic brewery, and then ended up with a, a nonprofit, not knowing how to do a nonprofit, not how to run a nonprofit, not knowing anything. Never worked in a nonprofit before. And the first several years were basically research, traveling out to communities all around the world, in India, in Nepal, and Philippines and Vietnam and Kenya and Latin America, right? So all over studying, like what is these communities doing that allowing them to feed generation after generation without destroying the very basis for that, their soil, their land. And then I realized like what agriculture is, you know, and there's this amazing Japanese farmer who says, the goal of agriculture is not the cultivation of crops, but the perfection of humanity. And I realized that our food system, you know, it doesn't just grow maize and potatoes and squash and beans and legumes. It grows us. It cultivates patriarchy and white supremacy just as much as it, you know, cultivates, you know, lentils. <laughs> right? Like, this is the realness that we're living in. And it was at that moment, you know, that we as an organization shifted from an organization that cared about the exchange of innovations and techniques, farmer-led research, farmer-led innovations, into a communications and storytelling organization that focused on human rights, 
aspect of our food system. They're focused on holding up a mirror and us because we want to support everyone in the world that's courageous enough to imagine something fundamentally different and brave enough to fight for it. How many communities are you working with and in how many different countries? It's a lot. Uh, I, I can't even count, right? Because so many of the organizations we're working with, some of them are located in small cities or towns or whatnot, and others are international, right? So we work with, you know, on one side, Abahali, which is in South Africa, which is the largest social movement post-apartheid, which is a movement of landless, right? 130,000 check dollars. We can work with them. We can work with Rural Women's Assembly in Zimbabwe, right? Which is a group of women farmers. We can work with APSA in Africa, which is a the largest civil society organization in Africa, which is like 200 million farmers, are, are represented in that the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa. So we work with them, right? And they're in all these countries, right? Or we even work with La Via Campesina, which is the largest social movement in the world, which is from, you know, I don't know, over 100 and somewhat countries, right? Millions and millions of peasants and indigenous and farmers, you know? So we can work on different levels of that, but we, you know, and we work with by how they come to us. So right now we're doing a project with AFSA and LBC and others around the encroachment of technology. How do we organize around for and against technology in the appropriate way for farmers, right? We're working with Abahali. We're working with Filipino peasant movement, right? We're working in, in Nigeria right now in a campaign called My Food is African, right? Which is how do we build pride respect and love around African food in response to a system of aid and dumping of, you know, cheap imports that undercut the whole cultural fabric of an economy, right? We've worked with rice growers in India, you know, that are pushing back against hybrid and industrial rice, you know, that have built the world's largest open source rice seed bank in the world, right? Like, and, and their farmers get access for 100% free up to 1700 different varieties of indigenous rice and we prevent them from getting patented we're trying to be as mergent as possible but as targeted at the same time and i mean you spoke a little bit about for example aid coming in in traditional ways that the u.s government would for example look at countries in africa and just whatever we didn't use in america sending it to africa and then just sort of imploding any sort of market that they had on ag. And these are things that happened, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. As of today in 2022, what are the sort of negative practices that you see from the development sector overall, not the, even the corporate sector, but from the development sector that are being sort of pushed? Well, I think it's interesting because I don't think there's as big of a disconnect between the development and the corporate sector that I think. Like, let's just be honest right there. I don't draw much of a division because a lot of these development companies were actually founded by high up members of the corporate sector that then branched off and created this entity. And it's consistently backed by the corporate sector, you know, and philanthropists who are investing in that corporate sector. I mean, it's all like they're vehicles, right? It's in a lot of ways, you know, this development is like modern day missionaries, right? Like it's, and we see that with entities like the One Acre Fund. 
right? And I think this is why narrative is so important, right? Because the One Acre Fund says we need to produce more to solve poverty and hunger, right? So that's the trope that we already talked about that was just wrong, right? But it's being held up. And that's the trope of the Green Revolution, right? Which is the reason that this hunger exists is because we don't produce enough food. So that like permeates through all this mindset and approaches of like, all right, so we're going to go into these communities. We're going to give them access to improved seeds, right? So we call them improved. We call them high yielding, which defers that the seeds that they're using are shit and not high yielding, right? Like mental trick that we do when that's not the case, right? We give them access to fertilizers and chemicals, and we get them started, and we tell them how to plant. And there's all these success stories that we're going to share all over Africa, right? What not? But yet, I've met plenty of farmers in one acre farm who look at me and they say, I have no autonomy over what I plant anymore. I have no control. It's like, is that what we're fighting for, y'all? Right? Like, And now, they have to increasingly use more and more chemicals, more and more fertilizers, because they've destroyed the health of their soil. And that model get them onto the pathway of green revolution, which we saw farmers took to the streets, right? Like we saw what that looks like in the long term, right? We see what that looks like in Iowa, which is one of the most food insecure states, but it produces the most calories, right? Like, you know, I mean, we see what happens when we push this model of agriculture. And so what I see so often in the development sector is a, a desire for a tangible solution that circumvents the foundational issue, right? It doesn't want to address it, right? It goes around it and that adds to the palatability, to the tangibleness. And it's rooted in like a desire for a panacea, for like a one size fits all. So, you know, we need to just build as many wells as possible. We need to adopt this technique as possible. We need to get this composter in as many communities as possible. And then all of a sudden, everything is solved, which is so interesting because it's so, A, dehumanizing. It treats individuals as beneficiaries versus active innovators, right? It doesn't address the elephant in the room, which is power, right? And for so many communities, they can see the elephant in the savannah easier than the elephant in the room. And that's a big problem, right? It doesn't address that at all. But yet it's funded unbelievably. And you see how that is. And there's this great article in Stanford Innovation Review that came out years ago. They called it Nowhere to Grow. And they interviewed DRK, Echoing Green, Skull, Ashoka, like, you know, these, all of these like, brilliant idea incubators where they put money behind some heroic social innovators, right? And that's going to solve the world, right? And so the, as you can imagine, billions of dollars have gone into these programs, right? And so they interviewed all the heads of these and they said, give me one example of one of those solutions that you've been pushing and funding over the years that's actually solved for the problem. You know, that's solved. And they couldn't come up with one. And it's like, because we have to fundamentally shift how we're doing this, what we're funding, how what we're fighting for, right? Like, it's unbelievable to me that we constantly want something to solve the world around us without confronting what we're standing on, like what the reality is, right? Like, it's just so amazing to me that we keep, we're like, 
you know, a fly to the light. Like anytime that somebody offers this new, innovative, great solution that doesn't allow us to fundamentally change in any way, we're like, wow, we're saved. This is great. We're going to fund this. We're going to build NGOs around this. We're going to do this. And I have to do nothing. <laughs> I have to change none of my behavior or my ways of thinking or relating, right? And, and I think that's so powerful. And, and so you have that NGO model, which is tethered to the corporate sector, to capitalism, to the elites, right? It's tethered to that. It's pulling certain strings and it's erasing others, right? And that's where I think the movement of peasant and indigenous communities is so powerful. And, and you can see that when you, you see the words of, you know, rest in peace, Chico Mendez, a Brazilian rubber tapper who says, environmentalism without class struggle, it's just gardening. That's it. What keeps giving you hope to continue down this journey to feel like we will arrive somewhere better and reimagine the world as we know it today? I have a complicated relationship with hope, right? But I think what's fascinating is that like, when we work in narrative change and communications, the people that we're touching, the people that we're inspiring, the metrics for impact are so much harder because it's at such a different scale and way of engaging, right? And the amount of college students that write to us that have said, ever since finding your platform and reading I've changed our thesis and now we're focusing on this, right? The amount of business owners that write to me and say, I'm looking at worker-owned models. Yeah, I'm looking at restructuring my whole entity, changing the way I engage with the supply chain into a web-based thinking, right? Of iterations, right? And instead of a return of investment into a return of interaction, right? Like we see that. We see policymakers, right? We see activists. We see all of this, like, you know, and you see this all over the world. In our community, it's incredible. You know, I've gone to art galleries and just a random art galleries in the Arab world and met artists and saying like, oh, do you know Grown Culture? This piece is inspired by them. And I'm like, what? Where am I, right? Like, I think we are working to build that solidarity and I think it's happened, right? But I also have to, you know, in the contrary statement of that, say that, we do this work, and I know this is with you too, because I know you, and this is what makes the soul brother, right? Like, this is what Colby said, is like, we do this not because we're going to solve poverty or end hunger or create a world where Nestle doesn't exist or whatnot, right? Like, but because it's the only way that we can keep on. That's it. Like, I can't imagine living any way else but in the fight against injustice, because otherwise my soul is lost. Otherwise my identity is lost, right? Like, and we're all like in this world that dehumanizes us all. Let's get us right. Like there's not a single person in this planet that's not dehumanized in the way that we're engaging today, right? And so we're just like sense-making. How do you make sense of that? Because it's scary. But you and I are here doing this work because we can't imagine another way. And so it's not about altruism. It's about the preservation of hope and dream and soul and values and beliefs and saying that no matter what the world has turned to, I refuse to go along with it, right? And I refuse that because it's not healthy. And 
I think it's really hard for a lot of us to find our way to world build, especially when we have this kind of binary. It's like so funny how often we critique capitalism. Everybody's like, oh, you're a communist. And it's like, wait, no. Like, And if you critique communists, it's like, oh, you're a capitalist. And it's like, y'all. There's more than two options. Like how we can like live. Like they're both shit. Okay. Like there's way more than two options. Like do not limit ourselves to this binary of like what does post-capitalism look like? It probably has tons of capitalism in it. The good parts, right? Like and the work is doing that for us in a way that doesn't cause burnout, that doesn't isolate ourselves from the ones we love, the things we love. Thank you, Lauren. I really appreciate your time this morning. You came off the flight. You've spoken very eloquently. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform. Find us at dasra.org forward slash NCE for more details.